You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everybody. I'm Dr. Scott Barber. Welcome to another episode of The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. We have an awesome show today. Uh, we're going to talk about coronavirus. Seems to be the major issue in the news these days. And I've been making some ob- observations over the last couple of months about how people interact. And I believe that this pandemic has been one of the greatest sociology experiments of my lifetime. Just seeing how we all respond to the information that's being presented to us and how facts have become distorted by politics, by fear, by myths. And we can learn a lot of lessons from these. And I'm going to try and number one, Help everybody understand what's happening with the pandemic, understand what's happening with this threat, and also understand why the information is being presented to us in certain ways, because this sort of information can be applied to other aspects of our lives, whether it's business or raising our children or schools and education, to understand how people respond to different pressures in their lives, primarily fear, money, uh, power. And we can see a lot of that in our response to what's happening with the coronavirus. Now, one of the first observations I'm going to make is that I believe our society right now has lost its way. We've lost our ability to think critically. And too many of our actions are coming from a place of fear. And they're not smart decisions. And I want to talk about some of these things. We're primarily going to discuss masks, my observations of what's going on with masks. I want to talk specifically about hydroxychloroquine. Hydroxychloroquine is this anti-malarial medication uh, also used to treat inflammatory arthritis like lupus and rheumatoid arthritis that has been safely used for 60 or 70 years in this country. And how politics has gotten involved in the ability of doctors to treat their patients. We're going to go over a lot of this stuff in detail. And then the final thing I want to talk about is social distancing. Does it work? Where did it come from? What exactly is happening here? Now, if we all remember the initial reason that we went into this lockdown was to flatten the curve. Now, for people who don't understand what that means, flattening the curve was evaluating the number of people who were going to get sick at any one time requiring hospital treatment. We wanted to reduce or slow the rate of infection so that we didn't get a rush of patients going to the hospital and overwhelm our systems to the point where there weren't enough doctors or ventilators or medical supplies in order to treat these people. And so we used a somewhat dubious strategy called social distancing and lockdown quarantine to try and achieve this goal. I think there's some debate as to whether or not social distancing had any effect. But we can look back and agree that we have flattened the curve. In fact, this country has only had five states responsible for all of the infections. The vast majority of infections and cases occurred in New York City. And in most places, there never was a curve to flatten. And in places where we needed to 
flatten a curve, that goal has been achieved. But somehow this concept of social distancing and quarantine and lockdown morphed into something different. And the reasons for this change of of goal has a lot to do with money, politics, and power. And we're going to talk a little bit about that today. But what are some of the things that we need to understand about the coronavirus pandemic so far? Number one was the goal of social distancing and quarantine was to flatten that curve. And that is mission accomplished. The other thing that we all need to understand that the measures that we're taking have never been designed to eradicate the virus or to eliminate transmission of the disease and additional infections. We know that there's going to be more cases. Now, as testing has become more available, we're starting to see more cases, and I know some people are alarmed. Oh, my God, there's more cases occurring. Well, yes and no. The reason for these this increased number of cases is because now we're able to check. We now know that the vast majority of people who contract the coronavirus are asymptomatic. And if you combined the number of people who are asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, you have a supermajority of people. Now, there was some information that was presented in Conservative Review uh, by Daniel Horowitz in uh, on May 12th, 2020. And we were able to look at the testing of some closed groups. So we had a, a group of people in several areas that were a self-quarantined group. One of them was the Diamond Princess cruise ship. And when they tested these people that were all stuck together on this cruise ship, they found that 72% of those aboard were asymptomatic. Think about that for a minute. You're looking at the number of people infected. 72% have no symptoms. They're unaware that they're, infect- they're infected. And the reason that this is important is that dramatically affects our mortality rate. Because when we were presented by the World Health Organization, a 3.4% mortality rate, they were simply looking at the people that they knew were sick and dividing that by the number of people that died and got the mortality rate, which was 3.4%, which is horrifying. But I always knew as a physician that there was going to be a group of people that were asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic or people that, you know, just ignored their symptoms, didn't go to the hospital and were never counted that we're going to bring down that mortality rate. And now that we're able to actually get some numbers, we can see that the denominator, the number of people who are actually sick, is actually far, far, far higher than even I imagined, which means that the mortality rate is much less than originally presented. And now even the CDC is reporting infection mortality rates that are similar to or less than the flu. The other thing we know at this point is... There are certain demographics that are more at risk than others. For example, young people are very, very safe and have an astronomically low risk of contracting this disease and dying, whereas people who are older, nursing home-type patients in their 70s and 80s with comorbid medical conditions like obesity and diabetes have a greater risk. Still not a ridiculously high risk, but that is the... the, uh, 
the type of person that is most vulnerable. So back to this study from Conservative Conservative Review by Daniel Horowitz. Uh, they looked at the USS Theodore Roosevelt that had an uh, outbreak. They had 1,102 confirmed positive cases of COVID-19 on board the ship. 60% were asymptomatic. That means half, more than half the people were unaware that they were sick. Now, understand, if this is happening in these closed systems, that means that the number of people in our country that are sick is much higher than what we think. And that, of course, brings our mortality rate down much lower. Aboard the ship, the Charles de Gaulle, they had 1,046 sailors. Um, They had, uh, let's see, so uh, 1,046 sailors out of 1,760 sailors that were on board this aircraft carrier uh, were positive for the virus. They had zero deaths uh, and two hospitalizations. We're looking at some prisons uh, populations from Reuters. There was one prison in Arkansas with 3,277 inmates. 96% were asymptomatic. 96% of those who tested positive were asymptomatic. They had another prison in Tennessee where they had 1,300 inmates who tested positive for coronavirus. 98% were asymptomatic. Now, understand, too, these populations also introduce some bias, right? I don't know for sure, but I'm sure that uh, society isn't equally represented in a prison. There's not a whole lot of sick people in the population. I'm sure there's not a preponderance of older folks in those populations. I don't know for sure, but there's some things involved in these populations that skew the numbers a little bit, which is important for us to always remember because on this show, we're never going to follow politics. I'm always going to follow the truth and tell you guys the truth and give you guys my opinions the way I see it. And I'm going to try and keep politics and other influences out of it. They had uh, another group here, pregnant women in labor, at, uh, in New York at Presbyterian Allen Hospital and Columbia University. They tested uh, 215 women. 79% were asymptomatic. 79% of these pregnant women who tested positive for coronavirus were asymptomatic. They've had some meatpacking plants here uh, that also showed supermajorities of asymptomatic people. We have some homeless populations in Boston, 87.8% asymptomatic. We even have nursing home patients. So this is selecting for old sick people. And even in this case, they had a nursing home in Washington State. 56% of those who tested positive were asymptomatic. Now listen, this is enormous. Why is this not on the front page of every newspaper in the country? Why is this not the lead story on every news outlet that these majorities and supermajorities of people that are testing positive are asymptomatic? This brings the denominator down low. The number of people that contract the disease uh, that is that number is divided by the percentage of people who die to get us our mortality rate. And we see that these mortality rate figures are commensurate with the flu. And this is important. 
with the flu, we almost take no measures, no precautions. We don't even mandate that people obtain a flu shot. Uh, in many cases, people refuse to get the flu shot because the pain associated with getting a shot is not worth the risk of them contracting the flu. Yet, we've created the greatest economic disaster. We've created a disaster that has involved medical conditions. We're seeing reports now of increase in suicides, heart attacks, strokes, cancers. Normal medical conditions are being ignored because all of our focus is on a coronavirus, a coronavirus that when we look at the facts, when we look at the available numbers, has mortality rates commensurate with the flu and, you know, presents to us a risk that we have accepted many times in the past. We've had many flu pandemics and coronavirus pandemics in the past that that have not caused the world to shut down and go into these draconian lockdown measures and to create these behavioral patterns, these wearing masks and things like that. But we've never seen this before. And this is going to have an enormous impact on our lives, both our health, our mental health, our physical health, and our economics. So back to the things that we need to know about it. You know, number one, flatten the curve. Number two, we're going to have more cases. Number three, the key here is to protect the vulnerable. We know who's at risk here. Older folks in their 70s and 80s that have comorbid conditions, those are the people that we need to protect uh, with uh, isolation uh, in, a, in a smart manner and uh, testing and things of that nature to try and protect these people. But young, healthy people, we need to get out. We need to understand, number four, the fatality of coronavirus is much less than what we were originally told by the World Health Organization. Number five, we need to understand that young people have an extremely low risk of death from this disease. At the time when I pulled this study, I want to say there was a total of 54,861 deaths in the United States. We had 12 cases according to the CDC, that were under the age of 14. At the same time that this data was collected, there were 600 deaths from influenza reported by the CDC. Now, it goes without saying every life is precious. We're not talking about choices between life and death. We're talking about risk assessment. There is no choice here that has no consequence. There is a tremendous consequence associated with this lockdown and social distancing in terms of health, mental health, physical health, our economics, that is turning out to be, in my opinion, far worse than the risks we face all the time. Now, understand, we have a a significant number of deaths from influenza in the childhood population every year. And while they're horrifying and we should work every day to try and reduce those numbers and find cures and all the things that we normally do, we still live our lives. And that's what we need to do here. We need to get back to living our lives. We know that on uh, May 15th, 2020, the CDC noted that in the age group between zero and 17, hospitalizations for COVID were far less than for influenza. So again, we're comp- this is the CDC reporting information 
that is available to all of us, and it's saying uh, as of May 15th, 2020, that's a couple of weeks ago, we had more hospitalizations of age group 0 to 17 for flu than we had for COVID. And we're not allowing our children to go back to school for what reason? On May 11th, 2020, in the Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA, 46 pediatric hospitals noted that the COVID burden was far less than the influenza burden. So what we're seeing here is comparing and contrasting. We're reacting to something that we have seen in the past in a far different way. Why? And a lot of it has to do with money, power, politics, the presentation of information, the way we internalize this information is affecting our behaviors. And what we need to do is start getting the actual information out there. We need to allay people's fears and start looking critically at this scenario so that we can make appropriate decisions about how to mitigate the damage from the coronavirus and also get back to our normal lives. Kind of the biggest lesson from this whole experience, I've learned this lesson myself in many other ways, but number one, I don't ever cede my power to control my life to any other person. I don't care how many initials they have after their name or how many titles they have. They're just people. They have information. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it's not good. It's always biased. Everybody's information is biased. And I want to make my own decisions, just like you should be able to make your own decisions. And that's really the fundamental basis of this show is to talk about free market health care versus socialized medicine. In my opinion, According to free market healthcare, I want decisions to be made between doctors and patients. They will make better decisions. They're using their own resources. It's their interests that matter. And so they make more in-depth, better decisions than some bureaucrat, nameless, faces, faceless, unaccountable somewhere else. And we can see that with this pandemic. We're allowing people to make decisions for us that make absolutely no sense. You can look in Michigan. They uh, are trying to open up a little bit, not really, but they're allowing people to go out on a lake in a boat two at a time. If you're a family of four, you live together, but you can't go out on this boat together. It makes absolutely no sense. And this is the same thing that happens in socialized medicine all the time. These seemingly idiotic decisions are made all the time with no concern for the individual's wants, needs, and desires. The other thing we need to do is is understand the data that we're looking at. And this is an important issue. We're starting to uh, look at situations, for example, we'll say, oh my God, 12 people died of COVID uh, in, in uh, pediatric deaths. And you might say to yourself, that's horrifying. But then when you compa- compare that to we had 600 deaths from flu that happens every year, the 12 doesn't seem so out of the out of the ordinary. It's just something we haven't looked at before. When I was in high school, I had a bit of a reputation for being a rabble rouser. I was a Ritalin child. You know, my mother was a nurse. I'd get my Ritalin. I was considered hyperactive. Uh, today they call it ADHD. I was a horrifying kid. I remember in fourth grade hearing, overhearing Mrs. Watkins talking to a family who was telling her they didn't want their kids sitting next to Scott Barber. And I overheard this, and Mrs. Watkins said back to them, I can't have every kid in the class not sit next to him. 
And I was so sad and, and devastated that nobody wanted their children sitting next to me because I was a disruptive guy. Um, the point is, I had this bad reputation, and because I had a bad reputation, I'm walking through the library one day, and my knee clicked. It wasn't painful. It wasn't pathologic. It wasn't anything. It was just my knee clicked. A lot of people have joints that click. The librarian thought that I was making the noise with my mouth, and so she threw me out of the library because my knee was clicking. So she looked at a situation. She used available facts to her to make her judgment that I was a rowdy kid and typically caused problems, and she drew the wrong conclusion. She concluded that I was making this noise with my mouth and being purposely disruptive, but in fact, it was my knee that was clicking all the time. She just didn't realize it. And neither did I, for that matter. I never really paid attention to it until that happened. This is kind of the same mentality that is happening as we're reviewing the information for the COVID. And a lot of people may be aware, my wife included, she'll say to me, oh, no, you're, you're telling me there's only 12 deaths, according to the CDC and pediatric patients. There's this new phenomenon similar to Kawasaki's disease. And 75% of the people that have this, this disease are, are positive for COVID. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, let me do a little looking into that. For those of you who don't recall your, your medicine, Kawasaki's disease is a vasculitis. It's a autoimmune inflammatory response that affects the blood vessels and can cause problems such as pneumonia. So we have problems with this all the time. And there are diseases now that are similar. It's not Kawasaki's, but it's presenting similar to that in the pediatric population. And we're no, and they're noticing that 75% of the people that they test are positive for COVID. People are drawing the conclusion, oh, COVID is causing this problem. Well, that may be true, but it may be not true. I mean, 25% of the people that are having this problem are not testing positive for COVID. And if you do some more digging, what you find is that we have 2,000 to 4,000 of these cases every year that are uh no etiology is discovered, meaning they don't know why this is happening. They've always thought maybe it's associated with a viral infection. Maybe it is. Maybe it's been COVID in the past. The point is we are facing a threat that we have faced before. This is not something that's completely new. Yes, this COVID, this COVID-19, supposedly, I'm not 100% sure about that, but it seems that the uh, disease is novel, meaning it's a new virus uh, that we haven't seen before. But we've seen coronavirus before. We've seen viruses that behave like coronavirus before. And so this is not an unprecedented situation. And so we need to apply more rational decisions to how we affect our actions to try and mitigate this disaster. So we need to understand that the exception is not the rule. You know, my wife will always say, oh, there's a person with no comorbid conditions that died and they're only 39. Therefore, my whole argument that this disease primarily affects older people with comorbid conditions. One case does not change anything. I mean, people die of bee stings all the time. People get um, stuck with thorns um, and develop infections and die. Uh People get blisters that go on to get infected and die. I mean, we have unusual exception cases that are horrifying when you hear about them, but they don't 
represent the general trend of things. And the same thing is true for COVID. There are going to be some exceptions, but the vast majority of the data at this point is pretty clear. The other thing is lockdown. Um, This lockdown is not without consequence. We know that people are avoiding going to the doctor because they're terrified of contracting the coronavirus and dying. I didn't really understand the significance of this until a few weeks ago. Uh, I've spoken on this show before that I got information that there was a pandemic going on somewhere around late December through my Twitter and social media. Doctors were starting to comment on it. Hydroxychloroquine was starting to be mentioned by certain people that, um, you know, I didn't really pay attention to hydroxychloroquine because at the time I wasn't really concerned that this was coming here, but I did think about it. I instructed people in my office to purchase more PPE and gloves and gowns and masks and things of that nature just in case there was a disruption in the supply chain, which actually turned out to be the case, and that happened, which, by the way, is a good lesson about free market healthcare. I'm a free market guy invested in my own business. I've made these decisions based on my assessment of things, not waiting for the government to tell me anything. And as a consequence, I had enough PPE, gowns, gloves, and all that stuff to keep my practice completely open during this entire pandemic. And we were able to treat our patients almost exactly as before the pandemic. The only thing I had, I eliminated was Older folks that I thought had a process that if something went wrong, they could end up in the hospital and total joints that typically go to the hospital. But other than that, we made the decision to stay open and continue to treat our patients. And this is a positive thing. So we need to understand that this lockdown has got consequences. Now, people with cancers that go through routine screening are not going to hospital to get screened. People with strokes, same thing. There are people that have cardiac disease that would normally get screened and have treatments and interventions, stents and medications and things like that. As a result, they're having heart attacks. Uh, People are not going to get psychiatric care. We're seeing a massive increase in suicide. So there is a consequence to this lockdown, and we need to understand that is this lockdown even doing anything? And in my humble opinion, I don't believe this lockdown is doing anything. There is a lot of evidence out there, specifically by uh, a Dr. Henderson, who managed the smallpox uh, project, who talks about reviewing the historical observations of trying to mitigate influenza outbreaks in the past, and there's no documentation, there's no indication that quarantine prevents the spread of a disease like this. So I am told, full disclosure, I'm involved with all sorts of organizations that are trying to put together procedures for opening up safely. Uh, You know, I'm a proponent of free market health care. So full disclosure, uh, from my perspective, I do not believe this quarantine is a necessary measure. Now, the people that I work with that understand the politics of everything that's going on have asked me to not talk about lockdown because they feel it's a political loser. Same thing with hydroxychloroquine. They feel like we've lost the battle over the hydroxychloroquine, so they've asked me not to talk about it because it will be perceived as political. Well, listen, I've lived my whole life following the truth. 
and asking questions and not just accepting what's been handed to me. And it has served me well, and I'm going to continue to do that, and I'm going to give you guys the truth, regardless of the political ramifications of it and how it makes certain people feel about me. But we should not give up on lockdown. Lockdown is not necessary. Now, there are some parts of social distancing that I do think are important. Uh, Washing hands frequently not touching surfaces that you don't need to touch, doorknobs and handles. I mean, when I open a doorknob, I treat my hand as if it's contaminated until I can get some hand sanitizer or able to wash my hands again. I try to avoid touching my face, touching my nose, uh, touching my eyes. If you've been watching on the the YouTube channel, you know that I'm failing at that. I've done that uh, several times during the course of the show, but I'm trying to, to, to do those things. Uh, washing hands, and then things that I do ordinarily, meaning I don't let people necessarily breathe on me, get in my personal space. I certainly don't want anybody coughing on me. And so I think if we make these common sense social behavioral changes, we can expand our economy, avoid the negative impacts of this lockdown, and still mitigate the effects of this disease. Understanding this disease is going to spread throughout our society until we achieve herd immunity, just like every other virus like this in the past has done. And we need to allow that to happen, treat the sick, protect the vulnerable, and try to develop a vaccine as fast as possible. So it's important that we understand we must achieve herd immunity. The goal was never to prevent this disease from spreading. The goal was just to slow the spread a little bit so that we wouldn't overwhelm our medical facilities. That has been accomplished. In my opinion, it was accomplished just by nature. I don't believe these lockdowns helped, but it has been accomplished. And then the final thing is, if you feel sick, just isolate yourself for two weeks. Uh, And nowadays, it's easy to get testing. So these are some of the things that we need to keep in mind as we assess the information that's being presented to us about the coronavirus. And I'm going to talk to you guys more about this when we come back from the break. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctors' conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. Susan Blank, host of Detailing Addiction and medical director of the Atlanta Healing Center. Please join me on Tuesday afternoons at 4 p.m. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. 
Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Scott Barber, and we're talking about coronavirus, the sociology experiment that's being conducted before our very eyes about our response due to this pandemic and our fears associated with this pandemic and how politics is affecting the decisions that we make. So we've kind of gone over the things that we need to keep in mind as we're considering the coronavirus pandemic, specifically flattening the curve, mission accomplished. There are going to be more cases. The key to our mitigation strategy is to protect the vulnerable. We need to understand that the fatality rate from this disease is far, far lower than we originally uh, were told. The World Health Organization started off telling us that the mortality rate was around 3.4%. Now we have the CDC reporting mortality rates that, more com- that are more commensurate with the, f- with the flu. We need to understand that our young people are ex- at extremely low risk for problems with the coronavirus. The JAMA has reported at 46 pediatric hospitals, the COVID burden has been far less than the flu. Um, The CDC has noted that so far in the pediatric population, there have been 600 childhood deaths uh, around that. That's more now since I've looked at this study, when we only had 12 deaths in that pediatric population associated with COVID. Uh, we need to understand that there are uh, are exceptions to the rule, meaning a lot of people are hearing about this Kawasaki's disease or a Kawasaki's-like disease. Kawasaki's disease, again, is this autoimmune disease that affects the vasculature, can affect heart and lungs, and lead to pneumonias and things of that nature. Doctors are reporting in certain areas uh, breakouts of cases that are similar to that, that are not Kawasaki's. They believe it are it could be related to a virus. They're noticing somewhere around 75% of the patients tested in this population are positive for coronavirus, which, by the way, doesn't necessarily mean that the coronavirus is causing the problem. 25% of the people with these cases are negative for coronavirus. We need to understand that the supermajority of people that are infected with coronavirus are either asymptomatic, meaning they have no symptoms, they don't even know they're sick, or very minimally symptomatic that they don't seek out treatment. And this is incredibly important because if we have this supermajority of people that are either asymptomatic or minimally symptomatic, they're not being counted in the denominator for the mortality rate, which means it's probably even lower than what's being reported now. We need to understand that the lockdown is the goal of the lockdown was to flatten the curve, that there are consequences to this lockdown. Primarily other medical conditions have been ignored. I had a patient who sustained a serious ankle injury. They went to a trauma center. They were pushed in a placed in a splint and instructed to follow up uh, as an outpatient to get definitive surgery. And the patient came to see me. Uh, after it had already healed in a bad position. And, you know, this was the type of injury, if I'd have seen it right away, I could have fixed it. The patient would have had a a nice ankle, uh, a healthy ankle for the rest of their life. As it is now, it's really irreparable damage, and they're going to have lifelong 
post-traumatic arthritis affecting that ankle and a significant negative impact on their quality of life. And this was all because of fear of dying of coronavirus. We need to understand that the goal of this of of managing this disease is achieving herd immunity, which is to say the disease spreads throughout the population. People develop immunity to this disease, and as our group, as our herd, as our population has a number of people that are immune to this disease, it protects the people who are vulnerable because the virus can't get to the person who's who's vulnerable. And so this concept of herd immunity is the goal, and lockdown is preventing us from getting to this herd immunity. And the final thing is, if you feel sick, just isolate yourself. There are still some unknowns here. Because we don't understand the exact number of people that are getting infected, we really don't understand what the R naught is, which is the R naught is the measure of how many people any one person will infect with a certain disease. Um, and so, you know, we don't understand a lot of these, these things. There are, there is the ability to get yourself tested now. Uh, you can go online and get a nasal swab test, which in my opinion, is not a great test because it only tells you if you have virus. It doesn't tell you if you have active infection. And it's only good for that day. Let's say you got exposed, uh, you know, the day before you got tested, you're still testing negative. You still could be positive. Let's say you got your negative test, you leave, you touch a doorknob, now you are infected. It's not good unless you're testing yourself every day. And I'm not suggesting by any means that people should get tested every day. I'm just saying that there's no panacea here. For my mind, um, I'm a doctor. So if I have an exposure, I have to go and get myself tested. But if I had the ability to just quarantine myself until I felt better, I would do so. Anyway, so how is our response being affected by forces other than medical knowledge. Well, it's being massively affected. And I can tell you that specifically by the way people are wearing masks and our policy towards masks, by the way this medicine hydroxychloroquine has been treated, and by this insistence on social distancing or lockdown and quarantine that really has no basis in science. And I want to explore that a little bit. Additionally, if you look at the politics of things, a lot of people believe that, and, and most of the evidence suggests, we don't know for sure, but it seems as I review the literature that's available that there's this lab in the Wuhan province of China that's a virology lab that is known to study coronavirus uh, on bats, and it seems like a worker was not following protocol and managed to get that virus out of the lab, and that's how this pandemic started. Based on my evaluation of the information, that seems to me to be the most likely uh, scenario. Now, if you understand, as President Trump has been in office, he's had a very strict policy towards China regarding targeted tariffs. And for all intents and purposes, he's really been winning the trade war against China and something China hasn't experienced for a very long time. And this pandemic has allowed China to damage our economy and and to really damage the world economy so that it's not at a loss. And we know that at a time when China was blocking travel within the country of China, 
they were allowing travel from the Wuhan province to the rest of the world. So they knowingly allowed this disease to spread uh, worldwide. And one can only conclude that the reason for that was they wanted the rest of the world to experience the same economic damage that they were suffering so that they wouldn't be at a loss. So we know that there was there's some influence with China and the World Health Organization. The World Health Organization is an entity that's part of the United Nations. It's the medical arm of that. I have known for a long time, and people like me have known for for a very long time. It's a uh, a leftist organization, like the um, well, I shouldn't say leftist, but it's a globalist type organization. The uh, World Health Health Organization is uh, not really the world health organization doesn't really have free market health care in mind they're more of a global governance body uh their information to me is always dubious I, there's the famous uh, i want to say it's the 2000 analysis where they have the united states medical system ranked 37th in the world behind cuba so ridiculous it defies any common sense and if you go and you read this study it's really based on tenets of socialized medicine and because the United States doesn't really follow socialized medicine, they therefore characterize the United States as having a, a poor health care system, which is utterly ridiculous, especially when you're trying to compare our system to uh, Cuba. Um, we know that on the political side, there are there are political views that are being facilitated by the response to this pandemic. Now, there are people, Democrats in office, that have always been proponents for massive spending. We've already seen almost $3 trillion of spending increase due to the fear of coronavirus. This spending is a political interest, uh, primarily for people on the left. We've seen the corruption within that spending. Uh, I want to say, what was it... Uh, I forgot how many millions of dollars were donated to the Kennedy Center. Uh, and then the Kennedy Center, after getting this money, immediately fires their entire staff. It, it's just so ridiculous. Um, so there's proponents of a $15 minimum wage. And we can see that this uh, spending package for displaced workers is, guess what, $15 an hour. And then there are proponents for a universal salary uh, meaning they want to just give people uh, basically money every year for nothing, and that's happening. Now, I don't necessarily disagree with some of these policies. Like everyone, a lot of this is new for us, this response. But at this point, um, there's no question that the politics is influencing the way we're behaving and not necessarily the science. You can see that the blue states are continuing the lockdown because it's promoting increased spending, this $15 minimum wage, universal salary. You see some of the red states like Georgia is opening up more. This is being um, reported negatively in the news. I, I mean, if you look at New York, the vast majority of cases, I want to say over half of the cases come from New York. We know that Governor Cuomo, at the very same time that he had an order preventing family members from visiting their, their their elderly family members in nursing homes at the very same time he had this order 
he had an order mandating that nursing homes accept COVID positive patients. I mean, it's so utterly ridiculous. It defies, defies belief. And yet the media is constantly portraying Governor Cuomo is this amazing leader who's, you know, doing everything perfectly. Uh, and then at the same time, Governor DeSantis down in Florida, who's been more prone to opening uh, and relaxing some of these things and has had, by comparison, very few deaths and cases. Uh, and he has an elderly population in Florida. He's con- constantly being portrayed in a negative light. So we know that politics is affecting our our response to this. And it's and it's disheartening to me. And I want to try and open people's eyes to what's going on so that we can get together and let cooler heads prevail and start making more rational decisions about how we manage this pandemic. Politically, Donald Trump as president was presiding over the greatest economy in human history. I mean, everything was amazing. We had the lowest unemployment in African-American communities and in, in, uh, fe- among the female population. Our overall unemployment rate was, at, you know, at record lows. Everything with the stock market was going through the roof. I mean, he really was presiding over an amazing economy. And this pandemic has upended that. Now, nothing to do with with Donald Trump. I mean, he had no control over this stuff, but certainly our response to this pandemic has caused uh, political damage to, to or caused economy to tank and a negative economy damages Trump. And there's no question that there are political forces that are committed to damaging Trump. And that is affecting the way we are managing our response to coronavirus. And then the final thing is, you have to understand that there are uh, financial conflicting interests out there. And I've been studying this a lot. And when I gather more data and really can present some hardcore evidence to you guys, I'll go over this in a later show. But there's a medication called remdesmavir, which is designed to uh, treat COVID. It was originally designed, I believe, to treat Ebola virus. But um, there's this thought out there, and I don't disagree with it, but it appears to me that we have this drug hydroxychloroquine, which is, again, a drug that has been around for 60, 70 years. It has a very safe profile. It's very commonly prescribed uh, specifically among uh, rheumatoid arthritis patients, lupus lupus patients, in patients with these uh, autoimmune arthritic conditions. Um, it's an anti-malarial drug that's used in countries that suffer from malaria uh, very commonly. And chances are, if you've been on a mission trip to South America, you've probably taken hydroxychloroquine as prophylaxis, even though there are other treatments for malaria. It's just it's considered so safe that even though you don't have the disease, we take it as prophylaxis. I mean, this is a medicine that really has a very long track record. It's FDA approved and it's very safe. And yet we've seen these ridiculous, over-the-top mobilizations of force with studies to try and discredit hydroxychloroquine, which were ineffective at dissuading doctors from prescribing it. I've been in contact with doctors from around the world on the front lines taking care of patients through social media, uh, email chains, text chains, discussing this now for seems like four or five months. And the people on the front lines are telling me that this drug is effective early in 
in lower doses than what we see in a lot of these studies trying to discredit hydroxychloroquine and in combination with zinc. Uh, we're seeing this, this, this attack on the, the ability of doctors to prescribe hydroxychloroquine. And I have to ask myself, why would this be? Why is there such devotion to try and attack a drug that's absolutely safe? It makes no sense to me unless I start looking into these conspiracy theories. And if you look at the people who are who are controlling the disbursement of hydroxychloroquine, they have conflicts of interest, including Dr. Fauci and other people. They are invested in this drug, Remdesmavir, which is produced by a company called Gilead. And again, I don't have all of the information here, but but the question is still valid. Why is the government, why did the FDA come out and basically uh, make a statement that they recommend against the use of hydroxychloroquine and all of a sudden this drug that's been safely used for 70 years is being touted in the media as being dangerous and deadly? How did these studies that, if you understand how research works, they came out with this VA study almost instantaneously that if you're a scientist and you look at this study, it took me two minutes, not even. It took me 20 seconds to realize that it was a retrospective study with tons of bias, and it was a poor study. In fact, it even says in the study itself, this is not a rigorous test in the second paragraph. And they had another study in The Lancet that also talked about hydroxychloroquine being ineffective and dangerous, that when you read this study, it's a poor study. It's not a rigorous study. And yet this information is coming out and they're essentially banning the use of hydroxychloroquine. Now, let's think about this for a minute. I know that I have doctors in other states that are absolutely terrified to prescribe hydroxychloroquine. And I have asked these doctors to... uh, come public and to share their experiences, but they're absolutely terrified of the governors of these particular states because they're afraid of retribution. And what we've seen is the governors of these states have basically co-opted the DEA agents to go and scan the pharmacies that are prescribing hydroxychloroquine so that they can identify the doctor's who are prescribing this, and then they're dispatching these DEA agents to these doctors. Now, these doctors are rightly very afraid of losing their licenses. And so what's happening is they're preventing these doctors from prescribing hydroxychloroquine, which is this very safe medication. Again, it's FDA approved 60 or 70 years. And yet these massive efforts to prevent the use of hydroxychloroquine. You have to ask yourself, why is this happening? It doesn't make any sense to me unless I start indulging these, you know, at this point I would call them conspiracy theories, but, you know, we've seen a lot of conspiracy theories these days turn out to be true. So I don't put anything off the table. But these people who are basically making negative comments about a um, generic drug that's very cheap, safe, and easy to use – have financial interests in other drugs and vaccines and things like that, uh, they should, number one, they should d- d- um, reveal that they have these conflicts of interest. And we need the media really to be looking at this more. And I'm digging into this. And again, once I have more information, we'll talk about this in future sh- shows. But suffice it to say that there is politics that's affecting uh, how we're behaving. And this hydroxychloroquine uh, is is really 
really the thing that sent the biggest red flag up to me that something is really uh, not right here. Now, if you can just imagine, we have this disease, this COVID-19. There are people that want to do massive spending. And so Congress basically plays on our fears. And in, in the beginning, I don't really... Uh, discredit anybody or fault anybody for following this. I, I was in, in agreement that we should do the lockdown initially when before I gathered more information. But to continue this line of treat of this course of action when we have so much more information makes absolutely no sense to me. So we got this drug, this hydroxychloroquine. They um, they originally just tried to give it negative press hoping that doctors will not prescribe it. Well, I'm like a lot of doctors. I'm in communication, and I'm being told by my friends on the front line who treat this kind of stuff all the time, my friends who use it all the time in um, the treatment of lupus and other diseases who say, oh, I've never even seen a negative side effect in my whole career. Uh, These people are telling me that it's a great drug, and yet I can't prescribe it. Now, let's think about this. The Congress in response to this pandemic, appropriated all of this money to take care of the pandemic, treatment, PPE, testing, all this kind of stuff. Now, there's a test out there, the nasal swab. I just had it the other day. Uh, I was negative, but I was able to drive up to the place where they were offering the exam, and all I did was show my ID and my insurance card through the window. Now, nobody took my insurance information down. I went through. They did the test. I pulled into a parking lot, and 10 or 15 minutes after I took the test, they came out and said I was negative. I then asked them about sensitivity and specificity, and they said it was about 5%. So that means even though I tested negative, there's about a 5% chance that I may have been positive and the test was just wrong. Uh, And then I asked myself, who's paying for this? Well, we are as taxpayers because what happens is Congress appropriates this money and gives it to the companies that are producing these tests, and they're out there ginning up fear, everybody testing, 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 to the point where everybody feels like, oh, i got to go and get a test, and then you go and you get this test. Well, who's paying for that? We are. And the company that's making these tests is just making money hand over fist because we're all running to get tests. And yet the test, as I said, it only tells you you're negative for that moment. The second you leave, you might be contracting the disease. Unless you get tested all the time, you're not going to know. And so this information is not really helping us make any decisions. So you know that that's happening. Um, Also, without getting into too much of the weeds of how medical billing occurs, but just suffice it to say that if you have a traditional insurance policy and you have like an 80-20 plan and you know I'm going to oversimplify this just for the purpose of this discussion but let's say you go and you get admitted to the hospital and your bill is uh you know $100 that means you got to pay 20 bucks and the insurance company picks up 80 bucks so if you go in and I you know basically treat a broken wrist and pneumonia and I bill 80-20, you're going to have to pay 20% of the pneumonia. And if you don't have pneumonia, you're going to come up to me and say, hey, doc, what are you doing? I didn't have pneumonia. You didn't treat me for this. And then you're going to raise a red flag. What this emergency package did was it allowed hospitals to diagnose people with coronavirus, and they would get paid at 100% with no copay from the patient. Do you guys see how this opens up the potential for fraud and abuse. I mean, 
you really have a situation where we're just tacking on a diagnosis of COVID to be able to be reimbursed at 100% with no interference from the doctor. And honestly, as we talk about this show all the time, that's really where people that are proponents of socialized medicine want to go. Once we have socialized medicine and the money to pay for health care is taken from the taxpayer and you're not having to pay at the point of service, then the doctor and the patient are completely removed from all of the decision-making regarding the finances. And then as the government starts to implement medical care, they're going to notice that certain things are expensive and they'll get rid of it. And then over time, you get really cruddy socialized medicine health care, and that's what's happening here. We're seeing that that this COVID diagnosis, this emergency code that was put together by the AMA is allowing hospitals to code people or diagnose people with COVID, whether they have it or not, to diagnose them with COVID, whether it's even relevant or not, right? So let's say you go in and you have a heart attack, but you don't have pneumonia. You're positive for COVID. It has no relevance. You, you know, we're talking about how this supermajority of people are not even symptomatic, Yet they give you the diagnosis of COVID, even though you died of a heart attack, they get paid at 100%. And people are going back and actually looking at these uh, CDC um, reports on deaths, and they're seeing, for example, that people are getting listed as dying from COVID, but they have no diagnosis of pneumonia. So there's no question that fraud is occurring, and this has a lot of uh, ramifications in terms of increasing the number of COVID diagnoses that we're seeing, increasing the mortality rate of COVID. There's a financial interest there. And so to circle this all back to my hydroxychloroquine, why would they want to block me from prescribing hydroxychloroquine? So you have this drug that's cheap and generic. We're out in the community, and this kind of stuff happens to me all the time. I'll have friends call me, and they'll say, hey, doc, um, I have this uh, you know, upper respiratory tract infection. It's been going on for, for a month and a half. I can't seem to kick it. Would you, would you mind prescribing me a Z-Pack? You know, azithromycin. And we do it all the time. You know, are you allergic? Do you have any medical conditions? You know, we do all that. And then we prescribe the medicine. So they get better. They never have to go to the doctor. Well, the same thing would be happening with this hydroxychloroquine. In fact, the same thing was happening with this hydroxychloroquine, meaning people were getting sick. They would call their doctor friends and say, hey, I have an upper respiratory tract infection. Doctors like me who would go online and talk to my friends who are, uh, experience with this would tell me you give them 200 million or sorry 200 200 milligrams a day uh you give them zinc and if they're suffering from a upper respiratory tract infection as well you can add azithromycin and what we would see in some cases we we talked about the report uh by john solomon a couple weeks ago in just the news that there's study out there showing a 91 percent Efficacy rate, meaning 91% of the people who are getting this drug were, uh, were getting cured. And so what you see here is if I prescribe you hydroxychloroquine, zinc, and azithromycin, and you're not going to the doctor, you're going to get better and not go to the hospital to be counted in numbers for mortality, sickness cases, and that affects the politics. So... I know we had a lot of information. I still have a ton more information to go over. I'm going to kind of recap this and try and put it in a more organized fashion in my next show. Uh, but suffice it to say, let's start using our common sense. We know with masks, 
I have been people watching with masks, haven't seen a single person wearing it properly, consistently, or the right kind of mask. Let's try and start making rational decisions and get out of this thing. It's time to open up the economy and let's get back to work, protect the vulnerable. I'm Dr. Scott Barber with the Doctor's Lounge. You're listening to me on America's Web Radio. I really enjoyed having you guys. We'll see you next time. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.